We have some that are watching online, some that are uh, battling a sickness, illness, some recovering from surgery, maybe thinking whether they need surgery. Uh, please continue to lift up uh, those that are uh, wrestling with physical ailments and illnesses. Uh, keep praying for them. Be mindful of the uh, prayer list that Erica sends out each week uh, to look through those and uh, just continually be updated on how we can pray for each other, lift one another up. Um, I was just standing there thinking about if somebody uh, walked in here, never been to a church before, it might be like, man, that's a lot of singing. You know? <laughs> um, why do we sing? And I, and I think one way to explain it would be, uh, imagine you just grow up hearing the national anthem and it's like, yeah, you know the lyrics, yeah, baseball games, you know. Uh, but imagine someone close to you spilled blood on a battlefield for this country and how that song would change for you. How something about the respect in that song would rise for you. Imagine the hero is Jesus and Jesus is the one that spilled his blood to save your life. That's what the songs mean. And so uh, it's not time to just have a jam, <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a meaningful time to bring our focus to what makes us different from the world. What has rescued us from darkness, the weight of our own sin, condemnation that we deserve. And we revel in the fact that we are freed from that in Christ. And so we sing with joy, even though it's weighty themes about sin. Uh, and those songs help us focus on the things that we're supposed to be focusing on, not at the expense of other things, but as the central thing that we're supposed to focus on. Now, uh, we did have one sermon about politics, and that's about all you're going to get. Because I think for many Christians, it's easy to be well-versed in politics and have really thin theology. Right? Again, that's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we preach. God's Word is the foundation, not a political party. And so we don't want to listen to more podcasts, more pundits, than we do preachers and teachers of God's Word. We need to get our nose in the book. And the reason why is because the, the greatest danger to the church isn't from outside the church. The greatest danger to the church comes from inside the church. And so that doesn't mean we go on a witch hunt, but it means we need to be alert. But not everybody who says they are Christian are. Not everyone who proclaims to be a preacher is. And not every person that stands up there and sounds really great as a preacher uh, is actually helping you. And so Peter, the, the primary theme of this letter in 2 Peter is to protect his readers, not from dangers outside the church, but from dangers within. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, small little letter as you get toward the end of the Bible, before 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is before Jude and Revelation. And so it's not long, but we are taking our time as we walk through it, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2, where he just finished talking about these false teachers that... Uh, the, his readers, his churchgoers, his, the congregations that are reading this letter, they are exposed to these false teachers. Uh, now, I know that you all, you know, like when you're on Facebook and stuff, you see 
people will say, don't talk bad about other ministers. And, and I, I get that because you don't want to become a culture where you're just constantly throwing ministers under the bus. It's one of the issues with discernment ministries where all they do is expose false teachers. And that needs to happen, but if that's all you do and your ministry is monetized, I think that becomes a problem because you have to find dirt. If there's no dirt, no dirt to be found, you don't have a vlog episode this week, right? And that, that's a problem. But even though that's a problem and it's extreme, that doesn't mean we just never call it out when we see it. We have to be discerning within the church. What is going on? What's being taught? And listen, if, if I start going whack, <laughs> you all need to pull the plug on me. It's, you have to be a discerning group of people. And like Dave mentioned, that's one of the reasons why we have those growth groups uh, where we're saying, okay, here's what the passage was. Let's study it. Let's look at it. Let's pray through it. Let's talk about how we're going to live it because we're not just dependent on some guy standing up there with a Bible and just, well, I guess he, because he said it, it's true. It has to match God's word. And it's not me being picky because I'm a preacher. You see Peter going, I mean, a whole chapter at least just devoted to warning his people, explaining to his people there are false teachers, not everyone that's a preacher, not everyone that has a degree, not everyone that graduated from your grandfather's seminary is legitimate. And so he explains to them that they are a danger, they use false words, they will exploit you, they'll take your money, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, and oftentimes they expose themselves in the way they behave, they get caught up and embroiled in sensuality, not not every single person, but he's showing patterns. We see patterns. And that God is not going to spare them. God, in fact, is going to judge them. That's 4 through 10. And then he talks about their arrogance, and this is what gets them in trouble. You remember what Paul tells the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up? That's not Paul saying don't get knowledge. He's just like, careful. If you don't have the love of Christ in you, knowledge is just going to make you nerdy and feel smarter than everybody else. And when you feel smarter than everybody else, you can't be checked. And when you can't be checked, you're in trouble. You're in trouble when you can't be checked. Somebody calls something out in your life, your first response shouldn't be, how dare you? Your first response should be, is that true? Because if that's true, I need to change. And these people, have, they've, they're so far past that. Look at the middle of verse 10. They are bold and willful, and they do not tremble. Let's just pause there a second because it gets a little weird, but just, let's just keep it where it's simple. They're bold, they're willful, and they don't tremble. They don't care. They don't care. They're, there's not that humility that's needed to be checked. If you ever fill out a spiritual personality survey. Does that exist? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like that's probably out there. Like spiritual gift survey and then some kind of survey like what are your problem areas? Or uh, if you ever went to someone for counsel uh, and they talk to you about your own personality, your weaknesses, or in general if people close to you point out things that you're weak on and one of those things is arrogance, attack that first. Attack the arrogance first. Because with arrogance, you won't change any of the other things. You won't listen to the help that you need on any of the other things. If you are arrogant, because the arrogant person is 
not able to be checked. They don't tremble at anything, at anything. Now, here's where it gets weird, and I'll have to explain it quickly, and I don't want to take too long on it because it'll derail the sermon, and it's like, what were we talking about? <laughs> and that's especially a danger in Second Peter. I'm like, Peter, come on, man. Help me out, man. You just you keep throwing things in here that are just really, I don't want to say annoying because it's Scripture, but it's just when you're trying to prepare a sermon. <laughs> but here, here's, I'm going to just read it. Here's what he says, and then let's try to see what, what's going on here. They're bold, they're winful. Just remember, that's the point. They're bold, they're arrogant, they're willful, they don't care. To the point of what? They don't tremble as they blaspheme. Not God, because the glorious ones is plural, they're not blaspheming God, but they do blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, on the other hand, so this is a different group, they, the false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And then Peter just moves on like we knew what he was talking about. Right? Uh, so here's one of the things. Peter is writing to an audience that is aware of certain thoughts aware of certain uh, aspects of Christian theology that we, is, we kind of don't pay much attention to. And it's not just because it's way back then. Okay? If I preached this verse in a Pentecostal church, they'd be like, amen, and I wouldn't have to explain it as long. That's just the truth. Certain traditions, certain cultures pay attention to spiritual realities more so than some other cultures. That's just true. And Peter just, he just sounds very Pentecostal. He is very attuned to what's going on behind the scenes, demons, spirits, judgment, and all those kinds of things, uh, which makes sense. You remember Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me, uh, after he told him that Satan has requested to sift you. Satan has requested to sift you, but you're going to make it, Peter, because I prayed for you. See, he's, he's, Jesus is opening behind the scenes. Why are you denying me? You're denying me because of satanic influences. And we don't often pay attention to those influences, that there are, there's a realm, a spiritual realm out there that we don't quite see, and we don't know all the details of it. We just know barely enough to know that it's there. So let me give you, uh, I think, the most plausible explanation for it, and then we'll move on. These false teachers recognize that there's a spiritual realm, and that there's angels, good guys, and angels, bad guys, right? Satan isn't by himself. There's demons. Demons, they were angels, and they're, in one sense, they are glorious because they're this higher order of being, but they've fallen. And he's saying, even angels wouldn't dare blaspheme the bad angels. Uh, but these guys would. These false teachers are so arrogant, they would do what Michael wouldn't do. They'll do what Gabriel wouldn't do. Even though Michael and Gabriel, as angels, are more powerful than humans, they wouldn't even do that. And so a word to my Pentecostal friends, when it's like, yeah, I'm an exorcist. I just walk up and I just lay hands and I just tell demons, I tell them where to go. Make sure you're doing that in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? That the Lord is the power behind that and not your incantations, not your shiny cross necklace. Right? Because there's a kind of arrogance where these false teachers, they demonstrate their arrogance, and his first example off the top of his head is how they talk about angels, and they don't know what they're talking about. If you're sitting there feeling like, I don't feel like I know enough, yeah, because the Bible doesn't tell us a lot. Right? It tells us just enough, and they're ignorant. They don't know either. Uh, 
And so he says in verse 12, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They don't know either. <laughs> but it's the way they talk about it. They hold it loosely, like it's, it's frivolous and not weighty thing. And I think that happens with all of theology. We don't want to take God's word as something that, uh, that we can take flippantly. There are dangerous things out there that we don't understand. And Satan is looking to sift people and tempt people. That's real. And we, when we think the only thing that's real is what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can see. That's the only reality that I have to pay attention to. That's a kind of arrogance as well. And not recognizing that there's more going on. They took it the other way where they feel like they understand what's going on and they blaspheme these glorious ones that I take to be uh, angels that are evil but referred to as glorious ones because they are indeed created higher order. The good angels don't do it, but they're, just, they're to the point where they would do what good angels don't even do. So then he tells us that they are like irrational animals. They are creatures of instinct. They don't really think things through. They just do what they feel like doing. And they're just going to be destroyed for it. So he says they're basically like wild boar. And these wild boar, they're born in the forest and they run around and they're just, they're just there to be caught by hunters. And so I don't think he's talking about why these people were born. He's talking about their destination, that they're going to be caught, they're going to be destroyed, and they're going to suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Verse 13. And so false teachers in the church is not benign. They do wrong, and so they're going to suffer wrong for it. And they get brazen. They get away with it. Especially when they become celebrities, they feel like they can do whatever they want. They get popular because they're strong teachers. They get popular because they're, they're strong communicators, and they know how to platform themselves well. They know how to ingratiate themselves with people. I mean, obviously, how else do they exploit people for money? People don't give money to people they don't like. People give money to people they like and that they trust. And so they are going to be destroyed, not because they are just secretly sinning, but they do it out in the open because who's going to say anything? Nobody. I'm the man. You know, that's, that's where they've come to. And so they count it pleasure to revel, not in the dark, not in the secret. They revel in the daytime. Revel in their wrongdoing. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Some commentators think that refers to the Lord's Supper. They feast together uh, on the Lord's Day. And so they're sitting in church. They're teaching in church. They're opening the Bibles and telling other people what to believe about the Bible, about God. And they're joining in the Holy Feast. And it's all a big deception. It's all a big deception. And they revel in those deceptions. In fact, I don't know if I've brought this up before. I think I did. But if you read Jude, you'll be like, wait a minute. Am I reading Second Peter? Because they're so similar. Some people think Second Peter used Jude as the basis for his own letter. Some may think it was the other way around, depending on who wrote it first. But they're so similar. It's like these guys were either, <laughs> they were studying the same thing. They learned from the same mentor or they shared notes. It's so similar. And right in the same spot where Jude talks about these love feasts with these false teachers enjoying these love feasts, he calls them hidden reefs. You know, hidden reefs, you're going along in your little speedboat and you didn't see that reef, you can't see it, it's underwater. 
bang, it blows a hole in the bottom of your hull and your ship sinks. He's saying it's not just their deception that they're tricking people that they're good, but they bring other people into that deception. They're that iceberg waiting to sink passing ships. And so it's just not okay. It's not okay for them to be around. That's why he has so many strong words about how they're going to be judged. They're going to suffer wrongdoing. They are blots, they're blemishes, they're stains, they're dirty. There's nothing actually clean about them. They're, they're unholy. And they do unholy things and they don't care. They do it out in the open and they invite other people to do it. And even if the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a time where you confess your sin, they just, they just eat it and they're deceptive with it. Verse 14, look at their character. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Anytime a woman walks by, it's just an object for lust. This is where they are. And worse, they don't keep it to themselves. Look at the middle of verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. They're not content to just have their own false doctrine. They want other people to join them in their false doctrine. They entice unsteady souls. Now, those of you who are strong in the Word, you read the Bible, you memorize Scripture, you study it, you train in it, you're learning it, understanding it, you're safer than those who aren't quite there yet. And some of you, you've been Christian for many years, you're still sipping on little droplets of milk. If you don't grow up, you're in danger. It is the unsteady souls, the ones that aren't, uh, like that faith hasn't been matured and solidified, the roots haven't gone deep, and those are the ones that are susceptible to being snatched, being deceived. And they have hearts that trained in greed. The word trained there is the word from which we get gymnasium. It's like they, they work out in figuring out how to get money out of other people. It's planned. They train at it. They're manipulative. And... They are accursed. Accursed. I know he calls them children, but accursed children aren't adopted children. They're children that aren't in. And they're accursed because of all of their sin, all of their deceptions, and how they try to bring other people into it. They try to drag other people into it. And so they pose this great danger to the church. The great danger to the church is not the guy you didn't vote for. The great danger to the church are people that have these YouTube channels who publish books. I hate to say that I'm actually pleased that so many Christian bookstores have closed down. I'd go into a Christian bookstore to try to find a book to give away or something, and I'd walk out oftentimes like nothing. Nothing. Nothing solid. The solid stuff is pushed away, and these false teachers are made prominent. Why? Because they teach what itching ears want to hear. They're after the unsteady souls that are out there. They know most people are not biblically literate. They don't understand the, the word, but they will pick up a book that, that capitalizes on their base instincts. You're awesome. I'm not going to tell you anything negative. You're great. It's a self-help version of Christianity, and it's a damning gospel. Don't be unsteady. Recognize there are people that are popular, famous, preach and teach at humongous conferences, and they are accursed. 
Those are dangers from inside the church. And we don't want to say, well, we shouldn't talk about people of the cloth. They're not actually people of the cloth if they're not even Christian. And so we should talk about it when specifics come up. We need to deal with it. And then this is, again, he's drawing on an Old Testament passage here when he says that they've forsaken the right way, they've gone astray, they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You might be like, this guy's just dropping crazy stuff. Actually, this one comes from the Old Testament. This one's in Numbers 22, and you can go look that one up yourself. This prophet that is supposed to be a truth teller, and not just a truth teller, but supposed to want to see Israel do what it's supposed to do and people do what they're supposed to do in covenant faithfulness to God, isn't doing that. He's trying to line his pockets and he's riding this donkey to go do the evil that he wants to go do. And the donkey speaks up. And the great irony there is God uses a dumb animal to correct an arrogant prophet. And what Peter's saying here is, You remember Balaam's story? You remember how he ends up dying on a battlefield opposing Israel? He died opposing Israel. And so no special passes were given to him because he's in the office of a prophet. He was so dumb and so arrogant, he needed to be rebuked by his mule. And he ended up dead. And Peter's saying, that's that's the way of these people. They may seem like really hot stuff right now, but... They're going the way of Balaam. So he's warning the people. He's explaining to them that these people are big trouble. This is a big deal. In verse 17, they're waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. You just get the sense like, all right, Peter, next. Like, next topic. I get it. And he's like, no. These people will kill you. They'll destroy a church, split a denomination. The, this is, notice, nothing here about the emperor, Roman, Rome's policies. It's inside the church. So yet another paragraph. But then he starts moving into this area where we are asked a difficult, we start asking a difficult question. If these people were a part of the way, verse 15, they were part of the right way, and then they forsook it. They've gone astray. Right? You wouldn't say that of somebody who never was a part of the church. You'd say that for someone who was a part of the church, went to seminary, got their degree. Maybe the elders laid hands on the person. They led a small group. They taught Sunday school. They discipled your kids. Babysat your kids. Came over for dinner. Answered your theological questions. Maybe you're a Christian because of their influence. They were a part of the way. And then they went astray. See? That's heartbreaking. And that's confusing. Because we're like unsaved people under judgment. They need salvation. And then saved people in the church. And Peter's like, yeah, no, but sometimes in the church, they're unsaved too. That's what's scary about it. So he does a little review. They're waterless springs, misdriven by a storm. You know, it looks like a spring. It looks like you're going to get water. But you're really not getting anything out of it. You're still thirsty after their ministry to you. And they're mist driven by storm. They're not driven by the Lord. It's chaos. And for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved 
So in other words, he's not talking about people that they just kind of need a spank on the hand, you know, they just kind of need to be corrected, but they're, they're still believers. He's saying, no, remember where the demons go? That's where they're going. <laughs> it's gloom and utter darkness, and it's reserved for them. It's there for them. Verse 18, they speak loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. This is, this is review. He's saying they're arrogant, loud boasts. And who are the people they entice? People that have just barely escaped from their sin. New believers, young believers. Not the mature and the steady, but the unsteady. And so they pounce on the weak, right? The lions go after that little straggling cattle in the back of the pack. Not the strong one leading the, the pack as they're running away. It's the one that's injured. It's the one that's lagging behind, and they, get, they become the meal. And so it's those that they go after. And he says in verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Hey, come follow our teaching. It's freer. No, it's not. It's more enslavement. And it's enslavement to corruption. And he says, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So this is Peter saying there is zero doubt as to their ultimate destination. There's zero doubt that these people are not saved. But they did this and they did that. There's zero doubt, he's telling them. <laughs> but you should have been here, Peter. He's, he's not that bad of a guy. What does he do now? How does she act now? Well, yeah, there's some corruption that sneaked in, but if corruption is their master then they're slaves to corruption, meaning they're not slaves to Christ. Remember how he started off the whole letter? Simon Peter, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. You're a slave to one or the other. So what Peter is saying is they're not in Christ. They're not slaves of Jesus Christ. They're slaves to something else. You can see it. You can notice it. And it's easy to give them a pass because of their track record. They've spent so much time with us and done so many good things. And he's like, no, but right now, right now, they're corrupt. And they've gone astray. So the reason why he repeats so many things is so he can make it super clear to them that they are wrong, they are going to be judged, and it doesn't matter how slick they are, how educated they are, how popular they are, how many likes and follows they get. They're in danger, and if you don't see it, you're in danger. Now here's, here's the doozy. I try to get to that material quick so we can just spend a few minutes unpacking this question here. What does it mean if somebody exhibits all the signs of being saved? You know, like here, if somebody wants to be baptized, I talk with them first. I'm not just like, oh yeah, dunk, right? It's like, well, what do you mean? Why do you want to be baptized? What's the gospel? Who's Jesus to you? Someone wants to be a member? We ask similar questions. What, a member of what? What does membership mean? What is it? You say you're a Christian, when did that happen? What is that like? And so you try to vet, you try to explain, and they can go through all those hoops and still fall away. And so what's difficult there is like, man, if people look like they're saved, they act like they're saved, they lead worship like they're saved, they preach like they're saved, they lead Bible studies like they're saved, and then they end up not being saved, what hope is there for anybody? Can anyone just lose it at the end, run a really strong race and just trip at the last second and you're out? That theology is a theology that's popular. That no matter how well you've performed in your life, at the last minute, if you corrupt yourself, 
you're out. Meaning you had salvation, now you've lost your salvation. And this would be one of the passages that they would turn to for that, right? They would go to Second Peter and then a couple other verses that if you just read it by itself, it sounds like that's what it's saying. And so I want to commend to you that I think that's not what it's saying. And so as we unpack it, we'll see some things that we should take notice of, but I do want it to stay a strong warning. I don't want to say, no, you can't lose your salvation, so don't worry about it. It's a strong warning, though. He says, verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, see, they left the defilements of the world behind. They escaped it. They gave it up. They gave up the drinking. They gave up the partying. They gave up the sensuality. In the past, right, because now they're not, now they haven't escaped it. They're doing it now. But in the past, there was a time where they escaped those defilements. And how did they escape it? Not just through church attendance, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What? They know Christ, and now they're out. How is that possible? And he says, in fact, the last state has become worse for them than the first. They're worse off now, having been a part of the church, and then left, than if they just never were a part of the church to begin with. And let me just pause that to say, we don't ever want to be the kind of church that is just like dunk them fast, get them into membership fast, get them plugged in fast. No, not fast. Carefully. Carefully. Because we do a great disservice to people when we're like, yeah, 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 say this prayer after me. Repeat after me. Abracadabra, Jesus Christ. You're in. You're in. And then they start becoming a part of the church culture and they start serving and we give them roles and we give them membership and we baptize them and give them the t-shirt. And then at some point they walk away. Now judgment is worse for them than if we never lowered the bar for them in the beginning. But no matter where you put the bar, you can only see so much. We don't have x-ray vision. We just see what's in front of us. They stop sinning. They clean up their act. They're going to Bible study. They, they look like they're repentant. They look sorrowful. Sometimes people are in tears, in tears in, in, in front of us, you know, at a member's interview or something like that, just in tears. Godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Anybody can cry. Doesn't mean they're in. So it's hard to discern. But when you look at what Peter's saying, like, I know, he's, it's like, I know how floored you are by the harsh judgment I'm putting on these guys that just a month ago were your favorite teachers. I know how hard that is. You trusted them. And I know you're going to talk about there was a time where they didn't commit adultery. It was the, he was the most faithful man. I wanted to be that kind of husband. I looked up to him. So faithful. He's like, I know, I know. There was a time where they escaped the defilements and came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But now that they're not, it's even worse for them. Because he's looking at the realities in front of them. Look, they are again entangled in them and overcome. They went back to those things that supposedly they escaped. They went back to those things that they were supposed to have now overcome. Now they're overcome by them again. And the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. See, they knew the way of righteousness. This isn't somebody that just sat in the pew. They knew the way of righteousness. Then, 
after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So he ends with that condemning statement that describes their predicament. So let me unpack a couple things here to help you explain, uh, to, to explain why I think this is, doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but rather that they never actually had it, even though it looked like they did. And there's a difference there. That's not just, oh, you're splitting hairs. That's not splitting hairs. That's a big difference. Someone is actually saved by God, and then they undo that salvation, or someone looks to us like they're saved, and then it turns out they never really were. That is a humongous difference, and I think that second one matches Scripture better. So when he says they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that has to mean that that's from outward appearances. It looked like they escaped defilements. Anybody can clean up their act. You don't have to get saved to go to AA and come out of the other end of AA with some coins and some months, years of sobriety under your belt. You don't have to convert to clean up your act with regard to certain things. Right? (laughs) There are non-Christians out there faithful to their wives. It's not every non-Christian just constantly cheats on their spouse. No. People can be decent in one way or another by their own strength. That doesn't mean they're completely holy or good, but just somebody cleaning up their act doesn't mean that they're a Christian. So Peter is saying, I know what it looked like to us. They escaped the foulness of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why I say I know that it can't be that they really knew Jesus. You remember in Matthew 7, Jesus actually talks about that day of judgment and the false teachers. Jesus is also talking about false teachers, just like Paul, uh, Peter is talking about false teachers. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, they would come to me and they say, I, we prophesied though. We were prophets. Jesus does not say, I know, we knew each other and we had a relationship and then you bungled it. No, he says, I never knew you. So from the congregation's perspective, I thought you knew Jesus. Now it shows, it shows that you don't. From Jesus' perspective, I never did know you. It never was there. Why? Because Jesus has the eyes of fire. Jesus is the one that can see right through a person. We can't. And so Peter's looking from the outside. They were part of the church. They were in the church. And now that they've come entangled and embroiled in those old things again, we realize that they are not, they've gone astray. And it's actually better that they never would have joined the church and started deceiving people and deceiving themselves then coming in. I want to remind you, I'll put this verse up here. I want to remind you of a verse when we went through 1 John. You might remember we talked about this topic a little bit, and John is talking about people that are in this category, and he calls them antichrists. Right? He calls them antichrists, and he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. You're like, yes, they were. They did this and they did that. No, they actually weren't. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Do you think become plain there is for Jesus? It became plain to Jesus? Oh, no, I never knew you. Jesus knows, so who's it becoming plain to? Us. In other words, John is saying it appears like they were of us, 
but now we know they weren't of us, even without the x-ray vision. How do we know? How does it become plain to us? They don't last. They end up leaving, and yes, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. But John matches what Peter is saying. It's not that they were truly in, and now they're truly out. It's that they weren't ever truly in to begin with. That means as churches, as disciples, as parents, we don't give the you're saved card right away. You've got to sit there and think, do you understand repentance? I don't want to just take you to pastor and get you dunked because your siblings are, have been baptized. This is your personal faith, and you have to understand what it means. And it's not just answering fill-in-the-blank questions from a doctrinal statement. Is there repentance there? Because if they don't give up their appetite for vomit, they will go back to vomit. And I think his closing proverb there matches what I'm explaining to you. They weren't a dog that became something else, and then they became a dog again. Why does the dog return to the vomit, even if you train it, even if you give it a cute name, put a nice collar on it, pick it up, carry it around in your purse? That dog, and I love dogs. You all know, you all know me. I love dogs. They're nasty. They're animals. They have no compunction to just, I vomited that up, it's going to go to waste. Anyone else want it? Down the hatch, right? Bathing a pig, bathing a pig, what's that pig going to do? They don't appreciate the fact that they've been bathed. They don't appreciate the fact that they're clean. They don't even like that garbage fragrance you put on them. You're going to go right back to the mud and spin around in it because it's a pig. Peter's saying it, they looked like they cleaned up their act, but it was just an external bath. But what we're dealing with is someone who's still an irrational animal, like a beast. They go back to following their instincts because those instincts weren't changed. Those appetites weren't switched. So parents, monitor the appetites of your child. I'm ready to be baptized. Monitor the appetites. Have their, do their appetites change, shift? Is there something inside of them actually changing besides just knowing how to answer Jesus' questions? As a church, we need to make sure that when we're discipling people, explaining the faith to people, inviting people into discipleship, it's not a closed door. This is open to you. This is open to you. You can, you can have this grace, but it comes on the heels of repentance. It's the repentant person that's like, man, I just realized I've been eating vomit all these years. And I liked it, and I lapped it up, and I loved swimming in the mud and spinning around in the mud. And now, like the prodigal son, I realized, I came to my senses. I think in today's parlance, it'd be like, the light bulb came on for the dude and realizes, what am I doing in a pigsty when there's a home waiting for me? Now, I don't know what it takes to come to that realization, but you have to come to that realization. And what's scary is some people do a external cleanup only to go back to it eventually. And so that's why I talk about uh, appetites, which I think is so helpful with this analogy that Second Peter uh, closes this section with. Have the appetites changed or not? And so what's really going on here is our inability to truly see where somebody is And sometimes we're going to be duped, sometimes we're going to be deceived, 
And the telltale sign that somebody isn't truly a Christian is that they don't last. They don't last. And so what the true proverb says has happened to them. A holy commandment was delivered to them. They knew the way of righteousness. And they had an entire church community pouring into them. And what did they do? They squandered it. And now it's worse for them now than it would have been had they never done it. You remember when Jesus talks about his little ones, refers to his disciples as little ones, and he pronounces a woe, a curse, a judgment upon those who would tempt his little ones to sin. You might as well tie a weight around your neck and throw yourself in the ocean. You're going to be judged. And so it's a dangerous thing for someone to become arrogant, think they know Scripture, they're actually not saved. There are times, there are times in seminary when I was a student, more so than now, but you would hear the testimony of a student that signed up to do a three- or four-year degree to get a Master of Divinity, and then they share their testimony, and they got saved like six months ago. And you're like, oh, man. When I meet students, one of the first questions I try to ask is, what church are you plugged into? What You think you should be here. What church says you should be here? I don't say it that way, but that's, that's what I'm kind of getting at. Anyone can come and get a degree. Anyone can learn Greek and Hebrew. Some of you feel like you can't. You can. You just be like, might be like me where you have to take it three times and don't tell anybody you're great, you know? You do it. That doesn't make you any more spiritual. You need a community around you that affirms that you are who you say you are. And so the last point of application is it's dangerous to build in sort of an anonymous uh, version of Christianity in your life where you can kind of pop in and out of church and people don't really know you. That's dangerous. You need people in your life that can be like, hey, your stuff is not matching this stuff to give you that chance to match it. But if you really were returning to your own vomit, would anyone notice? Would anyone notice that? Would anyone notice? Man, you smell like mud. Not to judge you. I know what the mud smells like. I used to enjoy it. It's not, it's not I'm up here and you're down there and I'm trying to judge you, but I want you to get out of it. I want you to be rescued from it. I want the change to be true in your life. But if we don't spend time with one another and follow James' advice of confessing sins to one another, we just kind of get together and talk about the weather, we don't get that kind of community where we can have less of this going on. And so Peter returns us to his opening verse. He doesn't want us to be scared that we're not saved. He wants to remind us that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. We have a faith of equal standing with even the Apostle Peter. And he tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1 that it is God's divine power. It is God's divine power that is granted to us. And he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. If you look at the top of 1 Peter, I'm going to just go back there really quick, but just I'm thinking of the way Peter just opens his epistles. He talks about this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. 
He gives us this inheritance, and what kind of inheritance is it? It doesn't perish, it can't be defiled, it can't fade, it's kept in heaven for you. So he doesn't want you, steady Christian, to come away from this passage going, oh my goodness, it's impossible to tell if I'm saved. That's the last thing Peter is saying. Does your life look like these corrupt people? Well, then that's a good sign. (laughs) Do you like corruption? Maybe you haven't gotten to the point where you revel in it in the, the daytime, but you kind of revel in it and you keep it and you protect it and you're kind of in pretend mode if other Christians around you really found out who you really were. See, that, that's a danger. That's a sign. And you could become a person in the category of being exposed to knowledge, exposed to righteousness, but you didn't actually change and you're just making it worse for yourself. God, Peter's calling people to be careful, to be a penitent kind of people. You know, in our membership classes, we talk about, you know, you don't become a member. You're not a member of a church because you're perfect. But we do want to see pursuit, progress, and penitence. Those are just signs of a Christian. Not a mature Christian, just a Christian. That you're growing, you're pursuing, you, you know there's stuff that you need to work on, but you're working on it. You care that it has to be worked on. You're not like, meh, corruption. You're like, ugh. It stinks. I can't believe I was eating that. Help me change. Help me change. And asking God to give you what, he, what you need, which he promised to pursue godliness. Let's pray together.